0: Good morning. Try that again. It's good to see everyone. Welcome. Um, So this has nothing to do with my sermon, but uh, apparently it's um, Pastor Appreciation Month. (laughs) Just throwing that out there. Uh, No, Um, I saw this. The reason I'm bringing this up is because I saw a pastor friend of mine shared this um, the other day on social media, and I thought it was too good not to share with you all give you a second to read that. For Pastor Appreciation Month gift idea, send your pastor a letter in which you solemnly swear not to consume cable news for an entire year. I think it's a great idea. <laughs> so I'm just throwing it out there. You know, if you're looking for a cheap idea for something to do for Pastor Appreciation Month. Can't get much cheaper than that. Um, I thought that was funny. Hopefully you find that funny. If not, I don't know. Sorry. Um, but uh, good morning again. Now we'll actually get into the actual sermon topic. Uh, we're in Philippians, and um, I want to start, I actually want to start with a, uh, I want to ask you to imagine something. So I want to ask you to, you can You can even close your eyes if you want. I want to try to engage our imagination just for a second as we start this topic. Um, so imagine that you, imagine you live in the first century. Imagine you are just kind of a normal person that lives in the first century, Um, You don't have to know much about history to engage in this exercise. It's okay. Just whatever comes to mind. uh, Picture the city, stone streets maybe. You live in a city called Philippi. And part of your life in this city, as part of your life in this city, you've become part of a small faith community that meets regularly, probably in one of your friends' homes. And this community is devoted to trying to follow Jesus together in this city, in Philippi. This particular community was started by a man named Paul, who is known for traveling around cities like Philippi, traveling around the kind of Roman Empire um, around the Mediterranean, and planting communities that are just like this and encouraging them to to keep following Jesus in the midst of their city. Maybe you individually maybe you converted out of some sort of kind of greco Roman paganism, going to the local temples, giving sacrifices. Maybe that was what you used to do, and maybe you've converted out of that into this Jesus way, into this Jesus community, because of what Paul did, because of Paul starting this community up. Maybe maybe you have made a major change in your life to do this. Maybe you have parted ways with some friends and family who don't understand what you're doing. Um, maybe this community that you're meeting with regularly has become your lifeline. They've become the most important people, um, supporting you in this faith commitment you've made, this life commitment that you've made. And it's very likely that Paul knows you personally because he stayed there. He started this community. He knows your name. He loves you. He cares about you. He, he knows what you sacrificed to make this change in your life, to be part of this community. And he knows all the other people that meet in this home regularly. You've corresponded you, As a community, you've corresponded with him a bit since he has not actually been with you locally. So he's traveled around to do this important work in other cities and other places. And you have since, since he has left, you've learned that he is imprisoned. You learn that he is in a Roman prison. Uh, You know that he is not doing well. You know he's suffering. You know that he might, you've heard rumors, you don't know exactly what's true, but you've heard he might even be facing death. Okay. How are you, and I want to actually get a couple of responses. How are you feeling about this scenario? What comes to mind? Questions, feelings, thoughts come to mind as you imagine this. Just shout, just shout out a few things if you feel comfortable doing that. Fear. What else? Supported. What else? How do you feel about this news about Paul? Hmm. Am I on the right? Am I on the right path here? Maybe one, one other, one or two others, other thoughts? Association. Association, might be associated with this man. Yeah. I imagine very mixed, very, very mixed. So I want to engage that before we get into the text. We're going to look at Philippians, hence Philippi, hence the city. I just asked you to imagine yourself in. Uh, we're going, this is our second sermon. Uh, we're going through the letter to um, Philippians. I It's funny. The the names of these epistles come from the names of these communities, right? I, I feel like I grew up in the church, and I don't, I like learned that embarrassingly late. <laughs> that that's where these names come from. Ephesians is to Ephesus, Philippians is to Philippi, Corinthians is to Corinth. Um, so the name, the letter Philippians is to the community in Philippi, and we're going to look at a section from chapter one, still near the beginning of the letter. Um, but the thing I really want to emphasize here, in terms of context, in terms of where this is coming from, is again, that Paul is writing from prison. He's writing from a dark and a bleak situ- uh, situation. And he's writing to a community that he knows and he loves dearly. It's easy to miss some of these details as we kind of just sit and read the page today, so far away from the situation. Um, but I think if you were in, and some, some people mention this, I mean, if you were in this community, it's likely you felt both supported by Paul Paul, and afraid about what was happening to him. And um, you were probably Worried about being connected to him. And what Ethan just brought up, too, I think is really striking to me. Maybe I'm projecting backwards into history too much. I'm not sure that's always a danger, right? But I, I suspect that it would be very plausible that someone who converted into this Christian life, this Jesus way of living would receive this news about paul and i I just i just think you'd have to think at some point oh my word did i make a huge mistake (laughs) did i make a massive mistake by converting by changing my life to follow jesus is this all a sham where or or maybe questions deeper questions like why is god not protecting this man where is god in this situation why did god not keep him safe surely god won't let him die right Or just what is it like the the shame piece too? What does it say about me that the man who convinced me to make this change in my life is now actually in prison and being humiliated publicly? Because imprisonment, especially in the ancient world, imprisonment is not in, in our culture. We kind of like hide and sequester prisons. I, I've done on again off again prison ministry, and you, if you if you never go to a prison, you just don't know they're there. Like, you don't know the prisoners are there. So in our and we hide them away. But in the in the ancient world, it was not very much like that. It was it was a public humiliation. Um, So, there's a definite shame, embarrassment, humiliation component to all this. Um, And Paul knows. Paul is, I know I'm spinning up a lot of context here. Paul knows that what is happening to him is going to have an impact on this community. He knows these people. He loves these people. He knows that what happens to him in his life is going to affect them. And I, I... deeply believe that that is the place from the posture from which he is writing this letter he's writing this letter to them in the midst of this entire situation and i i really believe and we'll see it in the text this morning a central thrust a central component of his writing in philippians is to build confidence and faith and to encourage um, this community of people even though he's in a very negative suffering circumstance And I would say, and this is kind of my main idea, honestly, this morning, my main point in what I want to bring to you this morning is that Paul does not want them, Paul does not want them to root their faith and their trust in God in his circumstances. He does not want to see them rooting and basing their trust in the Lord on any external circumstances, whether they're good or bad. Good or bad, positive or negative, suffering or comfort, any of those circumstances are not not a foundation on which to build trust in God. That's the main idea. So I, wanna, I do want to get into the section of text. We're going to look at um, chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. But I want to ask, before we even read that, I want to ask ourselves, are you, are we, am I? ever tempted to make judgments about how good or trustworthy God is based on the circumstances that I find myself in? Jordan actually sang several songs this morning that, uh, that get at this, and he actually even mentioned this. Things like, I mean, the obvious ones are things like career and finances, or health, or loneliness, mental, mental health even. Those kinds of circumstances, are, are, are you tempted to take those circumstances and use them as a judgment, as a filter for which to judge whether God is good or trustworthy? Or if it's not on a personal level for you, maybe it's a global level. Are you tempted to take global circumstances, which this is super relevant for us right now, things like the pandemic, things like uh, inequality, things like justice and injustice, poverty? Are you tempted to look out at the global circumstances and then use those to make a judgment call as to whether or not God is good or faithful or trustworthy? Man, if we're honest, we got, I think an honest answer to that question has to be yes. We're all tempted. I am tempted to do that. All the time. It's constant. And man, if I have one major point, I'm really hitting this hard right now at the beginning. If, if I have one major point this morning that comes out of this text that we're going to look at, it's that that is a profound mistake. That is not a good way to judge whether God is good or trustworthy or faithful. So let's look at what Paul has to say. Whoa. Don't know. Okay. The clicker's going a little wonky. There we go. Chapter 1, verse 12. Um, I have some key verses here on the slide. We're not going to read the entire text section of the text. We're going from verse 12 down to 26. Um, and Paul says here, I want you to know, beloved, beloved is plural there. He's talking to the people, the community. Again, he loves them. It's like pours out of the page how much he cares for these people. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel. So right away here, we see that one reason, one reason it's a mistake to look at circumstances as a judgment, as, as a basis for judgment on God's goodness. One reason that's a mistake is because frequently what seem like negative circumstances, like being in prison, like suffering, um, being humiliated, what looked like negative circumstances can actually be used by God for unexpected positive results. Paul goes on to say that it has become known, because of his imprisonment, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. So all the guard that's in the facility, in the area. He probably was more like under a house arrest kind of situation. We're not totally sure. But, but regardless, the, those who were guarding him have known the, come to know the gospel. Most of the brothers and sisters, so most of the church community in that city that he's imprisoned in, Um, most of the church community in that city having been made more confident by my imprisonment dare to speak the word with greater boldness so paul is paul is just humbly acknowledging i want to say that this is not man this is another temptation like anytime we're talking about these kind of circumstances it's really tempting to spin them right it's tempting to kind of spin to turn to, to, to add a gloss or a spin on it to say look at the positive look at the positive side here um, I'm a super, like, relentless optimist, so this is a temptation for me. Um, it kind of drives uh, my wife crazy. <laughs> um, but um, I always want to look at the, the like, but, but, but consider, this, consider this good part of this, right? That's not what Paul is doing here. I want to emphasize that. What he is doing is he's humbly acknowledging, soberly humbly acknowledging that, yeah, I'm in a bad situation, but there is something good happening, too. This imprisonment is genuinely generating conversation and discussion about Jesus. Like, it's just what's happening. It's, it's the reality. So he's not spinning it, but he's acknowledging to them, hey, this, there's, there's good stuff that's happening as a result of my suffering, but it's still mixed. He goes on to say, out of this conversation that's being generated because of his imprisonment, some people are proclaiming Christ out of love, knowing that I have been put here for the defense of the gospel. So, some people are saying it out of a genuine sincerity and genuinely saying, like, encouraging, either encouraging Paul or pointing to others and say, look at this man who is standing up for his beliefs to an extent of being willing to be imprisoned. Like, there's this genuine encouragement that's being spoken of. Others are proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering in my imprisonment. So, there's a lot of kind of theories about what Paul is alluding to here. There's a lot of different possibilities. I think what seems plausible to me as I've studied it, I think that probably part of what's happening here is there are people, and this makes sense if you stop and think about it, there are people who are looking at this man, Paul, in prison and they're saying, can you, can you believe this guy's willing to go to prison for this belief? He, believe, he, he literally believes that a Jewish rabbi who was publicly crucified came back to life and now it's worth making him the center of your life. Like, he really believes that, and he's willing to go to prison for that? Like, I think this is the tone of the, some of the, some of the conversations that are happening around Paul, around this whole situation. It's like, can you, can you believe that? Like, there's a, there's a contempt, there's a, dis, there's a disingenuous belief. There's, when he says, they're intending to increase my suffering and my imprisonment, I think that they're trying to shame him, like, humiliate him. Like, this is crazy. Can you believe he's willing to go to prison for this crucified Jesus? But here is what's amazing. This has been really striking to me this week. Paul goes on to say, what does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or of true, and in that I rejoice. Paul genuinely sees, and this is convicting to me, sobering to me, Paul genuinely sees the fact that Christ is being talked about and proclaimed, the kingship of Jesus is being talked about, he genuinely sees that as a greater good than his current circumstance of suffering. And he is suffering. That's important not to miss. But for Paul, the measuring stick, so to speak, the measuring stick is not, are my circumstances good? Are my circumstances bad? The measuring stick is, is Christ being proclaimed? That is the overarching deal for Paul. And I want to linger on this for a second because, man, I, I, maybe it's just been striking me this week. I don't know. But I just feel like this is extremely, extremely important. Because what Paul is modeling here is such a powerful conviction in Christ's kingship over the entire earth, the entire cosmos. Christ's lordship and kingship over all of that is so powerfully true to Paul that the proclamation of that kingship eclipses his even his suffering and his shame. The importance of Christ as king being known throughout the cosmos is so important to Paul that he can kind of set aside his circumstances. Not ignore them, not pretend that they're not bad, but just kind of set them aside. They're not as important. Paul is so sure that Christ's kingship is so good, so important, and so unshakable that it's okay to be embarrassed, it's okay to be humiliated, it's okay to be shamed, it's okay to be misunderstood, as long as people are hearing about Jesus. Let me, let me say, this, that is hard for me. Man, I, I'm not going to give any examples because that will be distracting and beside the point. But there are crazy things that are said and done in the name of Jesus. <laughs> there are bonkers things. And I don't want to be associated with them. I don't want to be humiliated. I don't want to have to talk to my neighbors about some of that stuff. I don't. Everything in me does not want to be associated with some of that stuff. But Paul would say, what does it matter if people are wrestling and acknowledging with acknowledging or or, or, or considering the possibility of Christ being king? What does it matter if you're humiliated a little bit? What does it matter if you're comfortable? Christ was humiliated on the cross. Man, it's been really, really convicting for me this week. But on the other side, it's, it's okay to also be in comfort. It's okay to not be humiliated. (laughs) It's okay to be in have plenty. Again, as long as Christ's kingship is being proclaimed overall. Both are fine. Those specific circumstances, comfort, suffering, embarrassment, lack, whatever. Ultimately, in an ultimate sense, they don't matter. And I don't, please hear me carefully. I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying ignore your circumstances. But what I am saying is that they come and go these specific circumstances come and go, God can use any of them to advance his purposes in the world. So, and here is the point, do not chase circumstances. Paul didn't chase suffering. Paul didn't chase plenty. Paul didn't chase lack. He just didn't give too much importance to either of them because the ultimate importance was whether Christ was being proclaimed. And he certainly didn't use circumstances to measure whether God was good or faithful or trustworthy or worth our lives. So, this all begs the question. This all begs the question. If circumstances, if present circumstances are not a good way to measure what God is doing or how good God is, then what is the measuring stick? If those aren't the measuring stick, as I said before, what is the measuring stick? Well, and this is where, you know, you cue the Sunday... What's the Sunday school answer? Starts with J. (laughs) Jesus, yeah. (laughs) Man, we need to get Sunday school back up and running, I guess. Um, So... If they're not if circumstances are not the way to measure then what is and th- this is why this is one reason why the Christian faith what's so part of what's so important about the Christian faith is that it's rooted in things like script the scriptures and specific historical events namely pr- primarily primarily I would say I think that's a fair word to use primarily Jesus's incarnation life crucifixion, and resurrection the Jesus the Christ event is what some theologians call it those Events and the scriptures are squarely outside of our experiences and present circumstances. So in other words, Jesus is a better measurement of God's faithfulness than whatever you're currently going through. And again, I mean, I'm trying to say this with all sensitivity because some people are going through real difficult things. I know that. And this is not to minimize any of that. It's to say that those difficulties are not the way to gauge God's goodness. Because Jesus is what Christians believe, what I believe. Jesus is the perfect and specific embodiment of God's love and God's saving actions towards us. Jesus is what God's love looks like in a human life. And, here, and here's, here's what the best part is. Here's the good news. What's true of Jesus is re- true regardless of any circumstance you find yourself in. The resurrection is true Whether or not I feel like it's true on any given day. The incarnation happened and is true. Whether or not I feel like it happened on any given day. And this, all of this reflection and conviction, this has all brought me back to one of my favorite quotes from one of my faith heroes. Who's a man named Leslie Newbegin, Who died not too long ago. Um, He said this. Oh, I don't know why it's doing that. When asked at uh, one point in his ministry, he was asked, um, are you an optimist or a pessimist about where the world is going? And this is what he said. I love this. Some of you have heard this before because I think I've used it in sermons in the past. But he said, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. <laughs> I love that. I love that. It just cuts right through the temptation to get miscalibrated in how we view God. It's like, listen, This happened. And this is, this is why I'm a Christian, because I believe this man died and rose from the dead. And that is a stake in the ground that cannot be changed. I just think the simplicity and brilliance of that are so helpful. Because it cuts through that temptation to use circumstances as a filter for our judgment upon God. And instead, and this is part of what I think, I've been, I've been really thinking a lot about what does it mean to convert. Like we use the term conversion, we talk about coming to faith. I think part of what coming to faith means for certain people is to get out of using our circumstances as a judgment for God's grace and faithfulness and goodness and instead put that all on Jesus. It's like, instead of rooting out any of my confidence in my circumstances or what I see happening, I'm just going to put all my confidence on Christ and the cross and the empty tomb. And nothing can destabilize that. The tomb is empty whether or not you feel like it this morning. And that as a foundation, man, I may, maybe in my heart has been drawn to this so much partly because of how unstable things feel in our culture right now. So much toxicity and division. And we've, a lot of the different preachers have talked about that. I, you certainly probably don't need me to remind you that that's the case. But there's so much kind of destabilizing activity in our culture right now that the idea of the tomb being empty no matter what brings me profound comfort. That as a foundation is so firm, it's so sure, it's so good. Because not only can it not be changed, but it it constantly says death is not the end. Death has actually been defeated. That cannot be changed. Just play, I implore you, just put your faith there. Put your confidence there. That was where Paul's confidence was. And I believe in studying Paul and learning more about him and in particularly in meditating on this text this week, I believe that is the basis on which he was able to exist in and through his current suffering in this imprisonment. And it's the basis on which he was encouraging the Philippians and by extension us today sitting in Portland, Maine. It's the basis on which he is exhorting us to persist in faith, persist in courage, persist in risk persistent belief because the tomb is still empty regardless of regardless of imprisonment or not regardless of plenty or not so i would say even though he's obviously he wasn't writing directly to us but his words are for us today it's an encouragement for me it's an encouragement for us that we would root our trust in god our loyalty to god our allegiance i like i like using the word allegiance that gets at something like my allegiance to God persists. May, may my allegiance to God persist despite my circumstances. And man, I don't know what circumstances, you know, Jill and I are going to find ourselves in down the line. We all might face real tragedy. But again, the tomb is still empty. And I want to say, Bert, right before I conclude, I want to say too that I, I alluded to our, the chaotic nature of our cultural moment right now a minute ago. I would say um, that is actually that's just something obviously as someone in ministry is something I've been thinking about a lot and wrestling with a lot lately. I think there's a powerful opportunity in the midst of this cultural moment for us um, to model. I mean, imagine how powerful it is to model the kind of the kind of peace. And love and joy and patience that come out of a this, that come out of being rooted and confident in Christ, the kind of peace that that produces in a life, imagine the witness of that right now. Like, imagine us as a community that are so powerfully marked by that and soaked in that, living that way right now in our culture. Man, that's my prayer, that's my longing, that's what I want for myself, that's what I want for us as a church. But we can't, you know, when I, was, when I was preaching about renewal a few weeks ago, I, I repeated this point a few times. We cannot muster that up on our own. We need God's Spirit to do the enlivening work. But that's what, that's what we need. But luckily, that's what God wants to do. And so it's in the context of all of this. All of this having been said, I want to conclude here. I want to consider, this is probably, at least for me, I don't know for you, this is probably the most well-known verse in this section, which is verse 21. I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, have heard this before or read this before. Paul writes, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He says this kind of out of this whole discussion we've been talking about. Um, This is a puzzling verse at first, because that phrase, to die is gain, that's um, head-scratching a little bit. Like, what does that mean, to die is gain? Because Paul's not saying, let let me also say, we have a tendency in our culture to try to, like, massage death and kind of make it a friend. Um... At least I see that in some cases. Paul is not saying death is a friend or death is good. Death is and always has been opposed to God's purposes in the world. So he's not saying that. But I think what he is saying gets back to the context of this whole discussion about circumstances. I think part of what he is saying is that the unshakable foundation of a faith, a loyalty to Christ, and what God has done in Christ, which again cannot be moved or taken away, that victory that's been won over sin and death and evil in the world, the peace that that gives you, regardless of the circumstances you face, that gives life right now. That gives a life that can be experienced right now. And that even, I think this is what he's saying. I think that he's saying, I can even face death in Peace. Even though death is still an enemy, I can even face the possibility of death in peace because of what God has done in Christ, which cannot be shaken or taken away. And because I know the promise of resurrection awaits. I think that's what he's saying. I don't think he's saying death is a friend. I think he's saying I can face the possibility of it in peace, even joy. Scripture tells us that, that Christ himself scorned the cross. He scorned the shame. He faced it because of the joy that awaited him. And I think Paul is very much in line with that. And I want to end by reading how Eugene Peterson translates this. Um, and I think after, what I want to do um, after I read this, I want to actually, I think, open us up. We have some time. Um, uh, I'm going to read this next verse, and then I want to open us up for, for some response, actually. Um, I think we're, we're a small enough group this morning, too. Uh, I want to invite some responses to this in the way of um, talking about our circumstances that we face. So I'll, I'll give a little bit more uh, explanation for that. But I want to read this verse in the way that Eugene Peterson translates it. And i gonna re- read it as kind of our closing prayer. And then I'll guide us through some conversation um, before we take communion together. So take this as our prayer. This is the same verse, uh, verse 21. He says, Alive, I'm Christ's messenger. Dead, I'm his prize. Life, I love this, life Versus even more life. I cannot lose. I love that. I love the way he puts that. Life versus even more life. May we face our circumstances in that spirit. The spirit of God. Given to us through what Christ has done on the cross. His life and his death and his resurrection. Let me pray for us and then we'll we'll have some conversation. So pray with me. Uh, Lord... I pray you'd birth a new thing in us this morning um, through these words from your servant Paul. Would you um, continue to do your renewing work in our community and broadly in our city and in our state? Lord, I pray we'd be a church that is profoundly marked by such an unshakable confidence and faith in what you've done in Christ that we would be people marked by peace, by love, by joy, by patience by gentleness. And then that that would not live or die on our circumstances, Lord, but it would be placed squarely, completely on Christ and your Holy Spirit that's alive amongst us right now. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So I want to take a few minutes, and again, this is not like, I really don't want to pressure anyone to share at all. Um, but I think there's something um, important. Like, we only gather like this once a week, Uh, and I think there can be a powerful opportunity to hear from each other. So if anything that I've shared um, has sparked something in you, I'd love for you to to take an opportunity to share it in front of the community. Um, This could be, um, if you want to, I don't know, confess that there are circumstances in your life that you have a hard time believing, you know, this is true, despite those circumstances. Maybe you want to share that with us. Or if you have an, ex- an experience of God working through a circumstance recently, um, a, si- a situation in your life. If you have an experience of God doing something unexpected through that, that, that would be encouraging for us to, us to hear. But what I want to do is just take a few minutes to hear from each other. Um, anything that God has kind of stirred up in your heart uh, relating to what I've shared. Um, I'll just wait a few minutes um, and then... Again, I've, I've said this before, but I'm, I'm actually really comfortable in awkward silence, so I'll just let it stretch out a bit. Um, and if no one wants to share anything, that's fine. We'll go to communion. But um, I just want to give an opportunity. So uh, just stand up where you're at if you want to share something. I always try to avoid contact, eye contact because I don't want to make anyone feel pressured. Thank you both. I, I really appreciate you bringing up the unanswered prayer piece because that's a real, very real thing. Um, and it's it's a struggle for me Sometimes to give a message like this with that, knowing that that component is alive and well in a lot of our experiences on answered prayers. Um, so I appreciate you bringing that up very much. And actually, another thing that's striking about what you just shared is that Paul himself says, and even what you said, he goes on to say in the text, like, he, you see him, I think you see him struggling with, it kind of feels like it would be better to go and be with Christ. <laughs> like, it would be better to just, to go, you know, to be done, um, but you see, so you—that's not my sermon for today. So I'll leave that for whoever has that text coming up. But that is a real—that's a very real thing that also is part of what I love about the letter. So you see him struggling with all this stuff, and um, I think the unanswered prayer piece—that's—that's that's part of why that Leslie Newbegin quote was so important for me—is because it kind of gets away from it, it. It gets the head out of that back onto okay. No, I know what Christ did. I feel like I'm getting an unanswered a no, or I have an unanswered prayer right now. But I still know what Christ did. I still know what that did. And what that means. Um, other other responses. Yeah. Yes, the psalmist says, um, "Do not put your trust in princes, they cannot save." I love that psalm. Um, but it's true. What you know, I think what you shared, Aaron, is very very true, very relevant. I mean, pol- politics are a circumstance. You know, like. And the temp- one temptation is to put your trust in God based on how politics are going. You know, that's a temptation a lot of people face. Thank you. I resonate with that a lot. I resonate with that a lot. Probably a lot of us do. I'll, I'll, I'll acknowledge, too, a struggle that I've been bringing to the Lord myself has been kind of related to that. But around, like, especially earlier on the, in the pandemic, there was a real temptation for me to think, okay, when the pandemic kind of, eases up we'll we'll get back to mission you know like we'll get back to like what the church should be doing you know um and uh yeah that's been a real wrestling point just individually with me maybe some other people can resonate with that between me and god and what we should be doing as a church but this sermon reminded me back of like you know what the the mission doesn't change the importance of proclaiming christ's kingship does not ebb and flow if there's a pandemic (laughs) raging or not Um, so anyways i just similar different particulars but i really resonate with that and yeah, thank you. Maybe one or two more responses, and then we'll, I'll guide us into communion. It's a profound. We live after after modernity. You know, it's a profound thing that things like the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, and all of this kind of told us that we can actually master the cosmos, um, but we can't. <laughs> tomb is still empty you know there's there's a there's a profound confidence shaking that's coming out of this moment this cultural moment for us um that i think can can bring us back to the unshakable foundations of our faith let's take communion together um i don't know if uh yeah jordan if you can come up play music and maybe um danny if you could help hand it out and ken if you could help hand out the elements um uh, if you haven't taken communion with us before, we do this every week. Uh, right now we're taking, we're using these cups. Um, there's a wafer in the top and then uh juice in the cup you can dip the wafer into. I'll ask you to wait until everyone has one and I'll guide us to take it together because we think it's important to all take it together right now. Um, but what I want to say about this uh, today, in light of everything I've shared, is this is a physical act. And the physical tangibleness of it, for me, it helps remind me of the physical act of Christ on the cross, that it was real blood and a real body. Um, and so, what I would exhort you to or encourage you to, as we approach taking communion together, is I would encourage you to take it prayerfully as an invitation to place your trust back in that foundation of which this points to. Thank you. So the foundation of our faith to which this points, that real historical event, that real human who walked towards a cross, I encourage you to take, as we take it together, take this in the spirit of an invitation to trust in that and not in circumstances. Good or bad. Good or bad circumstances. Don't trust those. Trust what God has done in Christ. So I invite you now to open it. Open the top, take out the wafer. Dip it into the cup. And take this bread as he took it and broke it and gave it to his disciples his last night here on earth. He broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body broken for you and this is my blood spilled for the new covenant take it and dip and eat in remembrance of him let me pray for us and then we'll sing one more song together Lord you are good your goodness is unshakable and it's evidenced in the life the death the resurrection and the ascension and enthronement of Christ our Lord who is king over all the earth even right now Despite our circumstances, despite the confusion of our suffering for circumstances we may find ourselves in, Lord. We proclaim your kingship, which doesn't change. We proclaim your goodness. We proclaim your love and your salvation. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.